Welcome to QTalks, a podcast series by QTech, the Cambridge University Technology and Enterprise Club. I'm Max. And I'm Emma, and we are your hosts for QTalks, a series for aspiring innovators in which we talk about the typical and not so typical journeys of making ideas reality and changing the world. Today we are talking to Ashley Ainsley. Ashley is the co-founder of Colour and Tech, a non-profit organisation that seeks to increase diversity in the industry. They work with some of the largest tech companies in the world, including Facebook, Microsoft and TikTok. This year alone, Colour and Tech raised over £370,000 in scholarships so that people from ethnic minority backgrounds could learn to code. After graduating from Oxford with a degree in geography, Ashley started his career working in strategy at the London startup Qubit, and then worked at Corporate KPMG and the Founders Forum Group. We are very excited to be speaking to Ashley today. Hi, Ashley. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat to Emma and I today. We've known each other for around a year now, and this is something I've wanted to do for ages, so I'm really excited that we're finally getting to do it. To start things off, please can you give our listeners an overview of your fascinating career? Oh, thanks, Max. Appreciate that. And thanks for the uh, for the invite more broadly and for, for the platform today. So yeah, my name is Ashley Ainsley. I am the co-founder of a, a not-for-profit based in London called Colour in Tech. Uh, and we work with a number of the big tech companies. I'm fortunate to call the likes of Microsoft, Facebook, Meta, Google, and, and co. Uh, as some of our, our, our corporate partners. And, and basically, we exist to try and get more diversity into the technology industry. Uh, prior to that, I was a strategy consultant. So um, I used to work for KPMG. I used to work for Boutique called Founders Intelligence. I, I started my career actually doing um, a mixture of customer success and strategy stuff for uh, a London-based startup um, uh, called Qubit. And prior to that, I actually worked for Google as well. So um, yeah, that's um, a little bit of my professional career, which I'm sure I can dive into. Prior to that, I was a, a graduate of um, St. Catherine's College, but in Oxford. Yeah, that was um, that's my alumni connection <laughs> there um, somewhat. Um, um, and yeah, I grew up in South East London in Lucian prior to that. And like me, you studied a non-technical degree at university. Has that been a big disadvantage for you working in tech or in a way, has it actually been a reason for your success? Yeah, I think there's this... Look, it makes sense. A lot of people, you know, the tech industry, so people think you need to be particularly techy in order to work in it. But actually, I think one of the things that my eyes got really open to when I was at university is actually, you know, take a company like Google. They probably hire more non-tech people every year than they actually do from tech people. And and what does that mean? Well, it means that you're interested in tech. You you like what's going on, but you might be a product marketer. You might be a, a program manager. You might be, you know, a finance assistant. You might be in HR. You might be, you know, doing a variety of different things. Um, you know, the technology industry, yes, obviously requires people to be um, developing software or hardware, but outside of that, they're businesses and they still need to have every other function that every other business has. What's served me well is I've always been interested in tech. You know, I am a bit savvy, you know, I, I haven't written a line of production code, but, you know, I, I know what happens if I open up the developer console in Google Chrome and, you know, I understand, you know, how the internet works. I think, you know, natural curiosity and understanding helps. Like I can be in conversation with technical people and not 
not totally be lost. So, you know, I think that is that is certainly helpful. And I learned a lot of that actually in my time at a startup. That's been helpful for my progression. But I think ultimately, if you're curious, you're interested to learn, you're passionate, you actually do your due diligence, you read up and, and you know, you just try and be the best you regardless of what your, you know, your hard skills are actually, regardless of what your career is, that'll probably take you very far. That's great. And um, touching a little bit more on the startup aspect. So you've worked for large companies such as Google and startups like Qubit. Um, how does the experience differ depending on the size of the organization that you've worked at and which did you prefer? Really good question. I think um, taking some of my experience, for example, massive company, 100,000 plus people in KPMG, um, you are kind of an ant in this massive machine. And, and you know, for, for some folks, that's good. They like the structure. They like to know what happens every year. They like to know what grade they are. They like to know what progression and pathways look like. They like to understand that, you know, if they make a mistake, it's not going to, to change the course of the, the, the company's success. You know, they like that there's lots of people that they can learn from who've, you know, had lots of experience before, who've done things before, you know, and there is a benefit to that. Like, I went and joined KPMG, very frankly, because I wanted to learn how good things were done properly. Um, when you're in a startup, you, you're, you're scrappy. You learn basically by doing stuff that works. And you kind of find out it works because it doesn't not work. <laughs> you don't know if it's the right way to do things. You just know it didn't break. So, like, that seems to be okay. So we'll build it and we'll go with it. And, you know, I got to a point in my career where actually, yeah, I wanted to learn what good looked like and actually really, really get that experience. So, you know, I'm, I'm thankful for my time there. But, you know, one thing that, you know, I wouldn't say I struggled with it. I knew the nature of the beast. I'd worked for big companies before. But one of the things that frustrates me about big companies is, you know, there's a lot of bureaucracy. If you're entrepreneurial, it's a really hard place often to be. People talk about entrepreneurs, but the reality is if you're entrepreneurial, you want to do something, you want to shake up something, you want to try something differently. There are very few big organizations just by the nature of who they are and what they do that enable you to, you know, do entrepreneurial things or tap into growth. And don't get me wrong, I had amazing opportunities. In a year at KPMG, I got to go to Saudi Arabia, Jordan, Abidjan in the Ivory Coast. I, you know, I was invited to Mobile World Congress. I had a great time in my year that I worked on healthcare, tech, satellites. Like I had a really good time there. And you know, that lent to me being entrepreneurial. But you know, there were a lot of times where I could have had a career path which was very linear and very, very, you know, predictable. And depending on your propensity to to like innovation and to like disruption, that, that can work well for some people and bad for other people. Working in a startup, totally opposite. There's kind of no process, there's no structure there's very little to learn from apart from doing. And some people love that learning from doing. It gives them the opportunity to try things, to know that what they're having and what they do makes a very direct impact every single day. But gosh, like, you know, <laughs> the pressure is a lot. Like, you know, it's, it's, it's probably the best training that I've ever had for running my own business because you know every single decision. Gosh, and, you know, I still get something wrong now for sure. <laughs> and you really feel the impact. And you don't feel that in the same way when you're at a big company. And if you get something wrong and a client churns, like, that's, <laughs> that's you. That's not anybody else. If you mess up a meeting, that's you. That's not, oh, well, the, you know, the partner's going to step in or do whatever it is. So again, some people really like that risk and that reward appetite. You know, the, the, the rewards can be great. You can grow really quickly, both personally, financially, professionally. But, you know, there, there is a lot of pressure and, and some people actually want to learn how things are done rather than necessarily find and work themselves out 
you know, that way themselves. So for me, I think it's a personality thing about what you prefer. I think in my career, I probably will probably do both. I probably will work for a small organization and probably a big one again. I like them both on their merits, but, you know, probably when I'm thinking about my pension contributions and all these other things, then, then I'll probably go to the big corporate. So I think it does depend on what you're looking for at the time of your life. But, you know, certainly for, for students and graduates coming out, um, I think it's really a personality thing and, you know, deciding on the direction that you'd like to take your career and your risk appetite. Like, are you are you comfortable with with more risk in, in, in your career choices? And, you know, talking to, to people at Cambridge, it's very easy to be very risky, actually, at this point in your career because you're in a really privileged place. Um, you know, and I was the same coming from Oxford. I never doubted my ability to get a job. And that is a mad level of privilege in this society and in this world. But the reality is, you know, you're smart, you've got a good degree, you'll be able to get a job somewhere. So that enables you to take a lot of risk where other people can't. You know, other people like, you know, this is the only thing that I've got. If I can't do it, what will I do? And, you know, that means that if you're able to take those risks, you know, you might get those disproportionate rewards. So, yeah, that's a very long winded way of answering. It kind of depends on your personality. Yeah, thank you. That's incredible insight from these experiences. And to touch a little bit more now on your personal experience of running your own or starting your own ventures, what have been some of the best aspects of starting and running your own company? What have been the biggest challenges? I never had a grand plan to be an entrepreneur. I think that's the first place to start up. I always thought that I could be like a CEO. I was always good to be working with somebody or doing something, making stuff happen. But I never wanted to be, you know, the entrepreneur. I thought that that risk appetite was a bit too much for me, if I'm honest. So it's quite ironic because I fell into it. I think the reality is when we set up Color in Tech, the first thing is I met a really cool co-founder. wasn't looking for one. It was just serendipity. Meeting someone who shares the same vision and passion and, and challenges as you is, is the way that we did it. And, you know, we weren't thinking about it. It was literally, you know, like we were just chatting about this issue for a year, really, on and off. You know, it wasn't intentional. I was, you know, working for other people, doing other things. But, you know, then serendipity happened. Opportunity came out of it. And effectively, long story short, is we got we got asked to do some work. And we were like, well, we kind of want to do it, but, you know, we're not really doing it for profit. We want to help people. But in order to, you know, take the money that was required to do the work, we'd need to put it somewhere. <laughs> and we didn't want to put it just into our pocket. So, you know, let's let's create a business account to put it in. And that's, you know, that's where it came from. In order to create a business account, you have to have a business. Um, so, you know, that's that's the reality of where it had. So I think a lot of people go really searching, searching, searching for a, a problem or a solution or something like that. You know, I've been fortunate that one was kind of organic. So, so that's kind of where it started. I think some of the challenges, as kind of I mentioned, with a small company, learning every day. I talk to lots of leaders, and I think the biggest challenge that I, I have in my job, the thing that keeps me up at night, and generally it does, like two nights ago, I didn't really sleep that well because I was thinking about this, it's people. Like getting people right, like, you know, hiring people, hopefully not, but firing people, interviewing, you know, managing your team, getting the best out of them. That is the biggest challenge that I find, like, my job would be very easy if everything was going swimmingly with the team at all points. <laughs> and the thing that I spend the most amount of time on is actually 
managing the team to try and make sure things go as smoothly as they can. People are complex and, you know, keeping people happy, making sure they've got opportunities to do stuff, helping them solve problems as a leader. You know, it's, it's, it's a different challenge, you know, when you work in a big company, if you don't know how to do something, there's always someone more senior who you can kind of get them to help you with it. When you're running your own business, it's, it's your decision and you might make that mistake and, and, you know, you might get it right, you might get it wrong. And, you know, I've definitely got stuff wrong in the time. And you feel it, you know, th- there's a pressure like, you know, if I don't sell stuff, I'm not going to be able to pay my mortgage. <laughs> you know, I know if I was at KPMG, if I, you know, if I got a PowerPoint wrong, not wrong too often, but, you know, I still have a job. So, <laughs> so you know, there's just a different risk profile to everything that you do. But, um, but you know, unfortunately, right now I'm sat in Cape Verde <laughs> um, recording this podcast. That wouldn't be possible if I was in corporate land because, you know, when you're in your own boss, you, you have the flexibility to work how you want, when you want, where you want. And, and you're not accountable to someone else. You're accountable to, you know, people who pay your bills. So, yeah, it's the work. But um, I can set the example for myself and my team that actually, you know, let's let's be remote and do things that work for us. So the biggest challenge in answer is, is people. Like if I could hire the best people who could constantly do the best work all the time, my job would be so easy. I'd make even more capital. You know, I'd sleep happier. Um, you know, we'd be more successful. Everything stems from having good people. Um, and that's my biggest challenge constantly. That's, uh, yeah, that's really um, remarkable to consider as well. So you mentioned that you have uh, also a co-founder in co- for Coloring Deck. So what would you advise people that are listening? How can individuals that are starting their own startups find the most su- suitable co-founder um, when they're starting their ventures? Um, what's necessary to look at um, in order to have this kind of successful partnership with your co-founder? Yeah, so I'll start off with the second part of it. It's like a marriage. Like, my co-founder is a guy called Dion McKenzie. I probably talk to him more than anybody else, certainly in the length of time. I mean, you know, sometimes we'll have, like, a four-hour conversation, just business meetings. Like, like so, so, yeah, and in a way, I've lost relationships as a result of it. <laughs> like, it's quite hard to prioritize your, your business and, and, and still make time to actually, you know, do those things. It's kind of like, yeah, like, you know, I've dated and I've spent more time talking to Dion that week than, than, than the person I'm dating. Um, so, you know, it's, it's that real. And, um, you know, it's not because I love Dion. I mean, he's a great guy, but it's not because I'm romantically linked to him. But I think the reality is, that's how the relationship is. You've got to be confident, able to talk, challenge, you know. We spend a lot of time, you know, going back and forth about what we think is the best way to do things. And, you know, we try and get to a consensus. And, you know, it might not always be where I start. It might not always be where he starts. But I think we get to a position where most of the stuff we do is is is, is consensual, if not all of it, um, in terms of the business decisions that we make. Because, um, you know, you need to you need to both be happy that things are moving in the right direction that you want them to. You need to consult and be open enough to challenge and say, oh, I'm not happy with that, or I don't really like that, or, you know, I think we could do it this way and and, and, and have that thought partner. And um, you've got to be in it for the long haul, which is why, you know, rather than dating, it's a marriage because, you know, again, if I think about that relationship, like I've no deal for longer than that one lasted. And that, you know, the situation is, it's because, you know, if you're building something, you're going into business, you know, we've now got a team of people, like, 
it, we, we can't just decide, oh, you know, next week, oh, we don't like each other anymore, sorry. Um, <laughs> like, there's a lot of ramifications and consequences to that. So you've got to be happy that you're jumping into, you know, those decisions with somebody who you work well with and rely on. And, and you know, we're not perfect. There's not everything that we get right. Um, you know, there's lots of things that I can improve on and Dion, you know, can do as well. But I think it's, you know, being able to, to work in that relationship and having that long-term view. I think in terms of the skills, I think what's good is we're quite complementary. I think, um, you know, I think that's really important from the skill set. Like, I'm quite industrially organized although you know i'm not necessarily on time to everything but i am really organized and 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 actually you know Dion not argue is relatively well organized but the organization could not work as it does if you know it didn't have my my level of commitment and organization to that but likewise i think you know dion's got some good business experience which i don't have actually and i think that really comes into into its form when we're making some you know difficult decisions or you want someone to to to, to bounce ideas off of i've got a lot of respect for solo founders because i don't know how they do it <laughs> <laughs> like I really if I, you know if I think about some of the challenges that I've had it's really helpful to be able to pick up the call and talk to someone and you know if you are a solo founder really get a good board mentor type people around you because you're really going to need that when when things go difficult I think for people looking I think um you know depending on where your venture starts from I think there's a few things I'd say if there is a challenge or a problem that you're really passionate about solving and you think you've got the idea to it, find someone else who's also passionate about that. And because you're passionate about it, it shouldn't feel like a big endeavor. You know, I think the best the best sorts of things can happen if you're, you know, you're passionate about solving that. And you know, who would say, oh, I'm passionate about solving expenses in a B2B environment? Like, do you know what I mean? How do you get passionate about that? Like you know, I think you can still be passionate. It doesn't have to be something that, you know, you're obsessive about, but I think it's like you're passionate about making things better or working or, you know, this is a problem that I felt. I know someone else solves it and they're, they're really equally passionate about helping solve that challenge or that problem. And I think, I think there's always a warning flag where you can't find somebody else who is, is endeared to the problem as you are. And that even means you need to expand your own network and find more people or that actually maybe that challenge or that passion or that problem isn't as acutely felt as you think it is or need it to be in order to build something successful around it. And that should be a real warning sign. A lot of people get really passionate about stuff. But if you can't find anyone that you can convince that this is a big enough problem that they can get passionate or solve the challenge with you on it, then that should be a massive warning flag. Like, why doesn't anyone want to work with me on this? Like, and and the answer could be the problem, or it could be you. And the reality is, like, you know, if you can't sell your idea, your vision, you know, your solution to people who you want to work with you on it, then actually you're going to be quite a bad founder. Because how are you going to grow a team if you can't convince people to want to work with you or work for you on it? You know, money helps clearly, but, you know, it's not the only reason people have a job. Like, you know, they like to do, they like to do stuff. So if you can't find somebody to convince at a founding stage, how are you meant to grow a successful business? Because, you know, why would someone want to work for you in that instance? You know, you can't even find someone to work with you. So, so you know, so that's the challenge, I think, is, is one thing that I'd say to people on that. And then the second thing is, I think you have to be a bit strategic about it as well and think about, okay, well, what are the skills that I am good at and what other things that you know i need to help with and again i think from a university perspective university is the best place on the planet to find a co-founder if you look at loads of the most successful businesses a lot of those relationships have been built from people meeting you know at the early stage like this or stuff like that 
reason is because you've got people with very defined skill sets that can be obviously quite quite um, complementary. So a lot of the time we meet people who are looking to find like a technical co-founder or whatever it is. You know, universities are great for that because, you know, there's a whole cohort of students who are probably studying computer science, mechanical engineering, whatever it be. So again, are you friends with them? Do you know them? Are you communicating with them? Are you passionate about them? Do you share similar interests? But again, think from that perspective about, you know, who do you know who's passionate and who's got some of the skill sets that you're maybe missing that can add to this? Um, and then, you know, it's a bit like that process of dating, you know chat to the person are you still interested Will you want to work with them on it because you know the reality is like can you have that level of commitment where you know at 7 p.m on a sunday night you're still having your call with your business partner about what's happening on that meeting on monday morning and you know you need to have that level of commitment to to, to the to the cause and and to what you're trying to build because you know the first part of building any business isn't the most successful part of it so you know if you can't get through the challenging part then in a way you know why do you deserve the rewards at the end so, yeah, what I'd say is try and find someone who's as passionate about the problem as you are. If you can't convince somebody else, the problem probably more with you or your problem. <laughs> um, and, you know, certainly at the university stage as well, you know, and even if you're not at university, think about those people who, you know, the pools of where the talent sit. You know, again, if you're working in an environment and you're looking for a technical co-founder, like one of my friends, he set up a business called Audio Mob. You know, he's a solutions engineer at Google, um, and his co-founder was working in um, working in in ads at Google, and they met at Google. You know, again, from that perspective, though, like they had complementary skill sets, but they met in an environment where you'd find similar people and complementing skills. So again, think about where are you going to find the right sorts of people, and how do you get yourself in those circles? And, and and ruminate over those things as well. I'd now like to move on and talk a bit about diversity in tech. Why is it that certain groups, I mean, especially people of colour and women, are so underrepresented in the industry? Like, what are some of the main barriers that currently exist in tech? Cool. Well, let's call it what it is. I mean, racism and sexism. Um, <laughs> um, that's you know, those are, that's the reason. Um, and um, you know, they exist in society, and you know, technology is actually just the, a microcosm of what's going on in wider society. So, I think that's the first thing. If we want to look at it on the on the most macro level, you know, why aren't there black CEOs of you know some of the big tech companies in there? Well, why aren't they on the fit, FTSE? Now, I can look at tech, I can look at aviation, I can look at retail, I can look at any other industry, and I still see the same challenges so clearly it's something that doesn't just sit in technology it's something that's broader and wider and the same goes for pretty much a lot of the um the, the diversity characteristics that we cover you know i think that there there is i suppose some progress on that i think more people are aware and acknowledge that that is a challenge and an issue and something that needs to get done you know if i think about some of the specific barriers you know it's kind of at a system level where do you go so take women in tech you know certainly in the technical roles once you get to that point as I said, as a societal issue, we don't see a lot of women going to computer science degrees, like systematically, systemically, physics, engineering, it's the same thing. So why don't we do that? Like as a society, you know, we need to widen that talent pool in order to get more people through that so that we can get them into being those senior leaders. So what are the things that mean at age 12, you, you stop getting the same uptake of, you know, women doing courses like physics? You know, if we really want to get down to it, it's at that level which we need to actually start thinking about some of this stuff. And what does our society tell us about the the role of, of, of women in business and technology, you know, more broadly? And it's the same, you know, sort of questions that we should be asking, whether it be ethnicity or race. 
actually what we find is say um, if you're looking at computer science engineering and those degrees actually the level of black students that come out of them um, are, are disproportionately high you know historically we see a lot of students do those courses but yet they don't get into the technology industry again so what are some of the reasons well historically you know when i got in i got in because i knew somebody who happened to know that there were opportunities at google i didn't know about that before so again, so how do people find out about opportunities that exist, but also like, are they accessible? I think another reason that I got my role at Google is because I, I met someone, I knew somebody who, um, who worked there, who was able to give me some tips about what the interview process might look like. You know, I think reality is, I, you know, a lot of other people didn't have that. So, you know, in, in that instance as well, I found that, um, you know, that was beneficial to me, but a lot of people don't have those opportunities. So what are they meant to do? So, you know, I think when we look at lots of these, these different things, there's a whole multitude, there's a whole <laughs> thing that go into it, that multifaceted that, you know, represent where we are as society more broadly. And, you know, some of those challenges are what we at Colour and Tech try and, try and solve because, um, you know, they're, they're, they're there, they're present, they exist. And, you know, that's not to say that these problems don't exist for other groups. I think a lot of people think, oh, it's a false dichotomy. It's like, if I help women, I'm not, you know, I'm not helping this, you know. Analogy that I like to use, you know, is actually, you know, take take Breast Cancer UK. Don't go to them and say, oh, what about prostate cancer? Like, we accept that both are an issue and we need to do something about both of them. So it's not to say that, you know, these challenges don't exist for, for other groups, but it's just a, it's, it's just a matter of, um, you know, accepting and acknowledging that they do exist and that we probably need to take a, a, a systematic approach to, to addressing the particular barriers that each group face. Please could you take us through in a, in a bit more depth how Colour and Tech address these problems? Yeah, so we run a programme, um, you know, at the university level called Tech Career Readiness. So we go and work with a variety of students, actually not so much so from places like my former alumni like Oxford and Cambridge. And part of the reason why is I say, you probably might help the least. I mean, <laughs> like, as a result of it, I've, I've been there, I've seen that, I, I, you know, I'm fortunate to walk around with a lot of privilege and, and that helps open doors that, you know, people don't have that access to. So we work with universities, you know, primarily where people don't necessarily have that opportunity and try and work with the students who, who typically don't get the same level of opportunity from wider participation programmes or whatever it be. And we give them effectively what I'd say is almost a bit of like a career accelerator. We take them through some of the things that you will learn, for example, at, you know, Oxford Cambridge, like that tacit, well, you know, how many networking events do you have the opportunity to go to? <laughs> now, actually, that sounds normal when you're at Oxford Cambridge, but when you go to another university, you realise you don't actually have those opportunities. Um, and what that does is it means that you don't have the opportunity to refine the networking. I'm sure if you look back at when you were first year going to your first networking event, it's like, oh, that's cringe. I probably just asked for the business card and didn't even have any chat. But by the end of it, you're quite comfortable with having a chat, following up on LinkedIn, maybe getting their email three months later doing something. And it's like, well, how do you condense all that learning into something else? So that's what we try and help and teach people. Because, you know, if you don't have exposure to that, then I can put you in a room with all recruiters, but it doesn't mean you're necessarily going to be able to convince them to, to look at your CV when it comes in the application part. So, so we run through, uh, you know, a six-week program where we take students and the unemployed through that and give them the opportunity to actually meet companies who work in, in, in the tech industry. So, you know, some of our, our partners are like eBay, 
DeepMind, Salesforce, Microsoft, etc., where they will, you know, then get the opportunity to build that network connection with recruiters and peers, and 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 hopefully have more compelling, one better applications to a better story that they're able to actually articulate. Both better because they've done this program, and better because they're now able to articulate it, and hopefully put in a more competitive application, which gets them a, a, the role in tech that they hopefully are looking for. So since you began working in this area, have you seen any notable shifts take place? Um, what has changed in recent years for better or worse? Yeah, so I think, you know, the big elephant in the room is obviously everything that happened after the, the murder of George Floyd and BLM. I think, um, well, I say is I was doing it before it's fashionable. So, you know, Color of Tech started before that happened. And, um, you know, out of obviously tragic circumstances, um, you know, there's been a lot more vocal vocal acknowledgement of some of the issues that are frankly in our society and you know therefore in the technology industry outside of that i think expectations were raised and i don't think a lot of companies have you know necessarily risen to them but you know give a few nice examples to keep it positive you know take google you know uh, i i used to work for them you know there's definitely areas that you know i think they would acknowledge that they want to do better but you know i, I would actually you know say well frankly they're one of the people doing this long before they're one of our first ever corporate partners so you know they're actually putting their money where their mouth was far before it was again as i call it fashionable i think the second thing is they they actually launched a, a black founders fund so you know they gave um you know in the initial tranche of that uh, i think two million dollars worth of equity free you know credits and cash to about 30 businesses across the uk and europe i think and you know they did this regionally so it wasn't just here to a bunch of founders who were black now we know one of the biggest challenges in venture capital isn't because well, black people have worse ideas of course they don't you know they're just a, they're just a proportion of society like everybody else like the reality is the the, the venture capital world has has left uh, a lot of you know founders underfunded so they don't get the same level of venture money or money to go with their businesses and and why is that a challenge well ultimately if you come from typically social areas of social deprivation which the majority of potential black founders do for the societal reasons that we know, then actually you don't necessarily have the same risk appetite or institutional wealth to grow your business in the same way that you might need to. I.e. if you can get a loan from from your family in order to, you know, buy your first stock and you can sell it, you can start to make money. You know, if you come from an environment like Mark Zuckerberg where you're privileged enough that you can drop out of Harvard and run this run this social network then that's great. But how many of us could afford to just say, oh, we're going we're gonna to give up on Harvard or Oxford or Cambridge and just go and run our own business? Do you know what I mean? It's great if you can do that. But, you know, if you can't. So we know that giving money ultimately helps. So, you know, Google, to be fair to them, have been one of those companies that just said, yeah, we're going to take our hand out of our pocket and do this because we know it's the right thing to do. And actually, you know, they get a lot of stick. But, you know, I can talk to and point to about 50 other companies which haven't done any of that. You know, I can talk to companies bigger than Google that haven't done anything like that. Cough. Yeah, there has been positive moves. You know, I think we're in a more fortunate position out of bad circumstances now than we were, you know, three years ago. But, you know, I don't think we're where we want to be. I don't think we're where society needs to be. And ultimately, it's got a cost. Building bad products, building undiverse businesses is, is actually just not good for anybody, frankly. And, and that's why this is important. You know, it's not virtual signaling. The reality is if you build a product that only a certain amount of people can use or works for a certain proportion of people, you, you cut off your potential market. You know, it limits your ability to make more capital and flow that. And that's just the economic argument for it. There's a social, there's a moral argument for all of it as well, you know, fundamentally. 
having a business which sells products and is able to sell products to everybody is is what all businesses want to be able to do. Before we finish, we just had a couple more kind of broader career type questions. And one of them was, what what advice do you have for students listening to the podcast who'd like to start their own company? You know, should they work at a big company first like you did? Should they do a Mark Zuckerberg and drop out or should they go straight after graduating? Like, What would your kind of general advice be? Yeah, and it's a bit frustrating, but I think, you know, the general pattern is the the Evan Spiegel's, Mark Zuckerberg's of this world, you know, are obviously exceptional individuals for a variety of reasons, but they are they are incredibly, incredibly small as a proportion of the, the, the founders out there, the success that they've had in the examples. You know, like the reality is building a good business requires a lot of different skill sets, and it's hard to have a lot of those skill sets from when you leave university. You know, take even the ability to sell in a pipeline. You know, if you're doing a B2B business, you want to have connections, relationships, network in the world that you can get meetings and that you can start to do that job. That is incredibly helped if you have that network and having that network at 21 is is impressive to do. And don't get me wrong, I had a little bit of it, but I certainly have more of it now at the other end of that almost 10 years later. So, so you know, I think what I found is that I built my own credibility at places like Google, at Qubit, at KPMG. I built my own ability to go and tell those stories, frankly, learn and make mistakes on other people's time and money. Because as I said, I make the mistake now, it costs my mortgage. <laughs> you know, I made the mistake when I was working for KPMG. Yeah, I could get another job. Like, <laughs> you know, so so I think that ultimately being able to, to learn the things that you need to learn to run a good, successful business on other people's time and money while you're building that network, while you're building the ideas, while you're networking and meeting potential founders, co-founders, customers, um, and all these other things is a useful and a helpful thing to do. And I would say if you want to be an entrepreneur, like, you know, go and work for a while. And if you still want to be an entrepreneur, then you'll be a better entrepreneur as well. Um, And if you actually decide, actually, yeah, I don't want to be an entrepreneur, then that's also fine. You know, it's tough and it's not for everybody. And, um, but, uh, you know, my advice would be, you know, it's really difficult to be the best person to do whatever business you want to do at the very beginning of your career. And if you're not the best to do it, it's going to be really hard to build the best business because you're not going to be able to hire people. You're not going to be able to sell your ideas to anybody. You're not going to be able to sell your products or your services to people, you know, and you don't necessarily need to best, but you need to be very good. <laughs> and, and you know, there's lots of people who aren't necessarily the best, you know, um, but, you know, they still exist. But, you know, the reality is competition is real. And, you know, if you're not the, if you're not very good at what you do um, because you don't have experience in it, then you're going to really struggle to be a successful entrepreneur. Um, why would you want to be an entrepreneur that goes out to fail? Like, you know, that's, <laughs> that's not fun. So, yeah, that's what I would say. I'd say probably get a little bit of experience before you try. And just to finish off, if you were to start your career all over again, would you do anything differently? A really good question. One I haven't actually thought too much about. Um, I think there are small micro situations which I might have handled differently. I think if I knew what I knew now when I was at Google, I would have even been more aggressive in networking. I would have said hello to absolutely everybody in the lift. I would have said, you know, I would have gone and shaken hands and this is pre-COVID. So, you know, <laughs> like shaking hands was a weird thing to do. But, you know, I would have gone and, you know, met even more people, said hello to more people, put myself on their radar, you know, just been out there 
and even more so than I was because, you know, I was okay. But, you know, there were days where I'd just go in, do my job and leave. And, you know, that was fine. But actually, gosh, I wish every day I was out there meeting as many people, saying hello to as many people, letting them know who I am, what I wanted to do in life, who I was. So some of those connections I still have, you know, those people still know me, they still follow me, they're still, you know, you never know where these people turn up or what they end up doing in the future. And that can always be helpful for you. Um, you know, if you need an introduction to somebody at, you know, IBM and now your, you know, manager or internal, whoever you've met five years ago, remembers you and now can give you that introduction, then that's helpful in life as you move on. So, of course, there are, like, you know, some things that I wish I would have handled better. You know, I remember one time I didn't get, you know, I went for a promotion and I didn't get it and I had a bit of a sulk. But I probably would have handled it a bit differently. But, you know, you live and learn. Now I know that I wouldn't do that again. And now I can promote myself. So, <laughs> so you know, I think, I, you know, I think there's things that you learn along the way. But, you know, ultimately, the advice that I would give to myself, you know, if I was doing it all again, wouldn't be to really change the decisions that I've made massively. It would be to just be more overtly out there and network even more because, yeah, like it will, it, it will, it will come back to, to, to help you later on. Thank you so much, Ashley. I really, really enjoyed that conversation. I'm sure our listeners will too. So thank you. And we really appreciate your time. Yeah, thank you so much. Um, yeah, as I said, network, do find me. I'm on LinkedIn. So yeah, connect with me, Ashley Ainsley. Please do check out my work and, and what me and the team do at Colour Tech for all. Massive thank you to the team. Thanks. Thank you so much to Ashley for joining us on Q Talks today. This podcast was produced by Carl Homer from Cambridge TV. To find out more about QTech or to listen to previous episodes, please visit our website at qtech.io and follow up on Twitter at QTech.